Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. How's it going? What's new? How you feeling? <laughs> How's winter treating you? <laughs> Isn't it Groundhog Day tomorrow <laughs> or yesterday or maybe we're still in it? <laughs> you know, I would say yes, but it both snowed and hailed this week in Los Angeles. And what? I know. It's just, you know, of all of the terrible things that are happening in the world, it just makes me more and more concerned about, uh, you know, the climate crisis. And when I tell you, when it was hailing, I was so confused because I hadn't heard such a noise (laughs) in in some time. (laughs) I was like, what's happening? Something is falling on the house. And I know that that's not rain. (laughs) I'm just like so confused. And it was it was hail. It was hail. Wow. Um, I assume that's not normal. It is very not normal. For those of you who don't know, um, Los Angeles is a place where weather literally goes to die. There's no weather here. It's basically the same almost all the time. And so that <laughs> when it when it rains out here, it's hilarious. It is like it's like a giant, terrible snowfall, uh, you know, in Toronto when people can't drive anymore. It When it rains out here, people can't drive anymore. And <laughs> the roads aren't constructed to hold water. So there's just giant amounts of like massively dangerous puddles all over the place. And nobody has good tires. And it's just a full disaster when it rains out here. So the fact that it was snowing and also hailing is next level. Mm. The the one thing about Los Angeles that um, many uh, listeners may not know is that their curbs are so high that every time you open a car door, you always scrape it. <laughs> yeah, it's that's um, so fucking stupid. Urban planning in Los Angeles, <laughs> not great. Another thing, though, that, uh, you know, like a, a political thing related to the weather in Los Angeles that people may not know is that that I learned recently is that more people die from hypothermia. Um, from exposure to the cold at, here in LA than do in New York every year because wow. there, yeah, because there is no planning. Well, first of all, because the unhoused situation out here in LA is absolutely atrocious, um, but also because there is absolutely no planning around uh, making sure that people are warm, like warming centers and, and doing that in, in a mass way. Uh, because there's this assumption that it's going to be warm out here, but it's it does the temperature does drop uh, at night um, throughout the year to dangerous levels, and that is a consequence of how the weather works out here, and and a consequence of really shitty politicians. Let's be very clear. <laughs> right. There's a lot of uh, anti-poverty activists uh, in Canada who are asking more and more frequently, like, why are we keeping huge uh, spaces like hotels empty. Why can't we, you know, use this to help people who are unhoused to have a place to live? Um, And I think I even saw some activists in Ottawa asking the similar question of empty office buildings, because of course, you know, most offices are or should be empty right now. And it's definitely an interesting moment for us to see just as, you know, going back to the urban planning question, how poorly our cities have been built for people to help people through whatever situation might arise and instead have been all built towards making money, getting to work, getting home from work at these very specific times. And um, I really hope that we retain like this feeling uh, as we, you know, hopefully get out of the pandemic to remember 
like what it's like to think outside of the box when you're forced to. And um, and so kudos to all of those activists who are talking about these issues and are, you know, raising the alarm for how unsafe it is to live to live outside. And especially, you know, Quebec, we have this curfew and the government had to be brought to court over whether or not the, the curfew could apply to, to people who have nowhere to go, to people who are homeless. And our government's argument was, well, you know, people can just pretend they're homeless if the cops show up. <laughs> it was like unbelievable. Yeah, exactly. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, but you know, the courts and activists challenged that, which is great, and uh, they were forced to accept that. Of course, that's not that's not possible, and they're not going to challenge that decision. So, very small, minor victory happened in Quebec this past week. Um, that and one that we never should have had to deal with in the first place. Um, but you know, politicians these days, hmm, they're not doing so well. No, but one final note on on cops and uh, and this this situation of planning and the urban space and unhoused communities. Did you see the news in Austin, Texas this week? Hmm, I don't think I did. So the city council in Austin, Texas, reallocated hundreds of millions of dollars from the police to buy hotels for unhoused people to live in. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So for those of you who are activists um, who are doing this work in Canada and need um, some sort of example to point to um, or even need to uh, have discussions with activists who made it happen, you should definitely look up the situation in Austin. It didn't happen without struggle. And so, uh, uh, you know, take a look at that. A, a great example of um, exactly what we've been calling for in defunding the police um, and changing the way that we take care of one another. So take a look at that. That's awesome. We are not talking about urban planning so much today. Uh, it's going to be... No. Uh, what's up with COVID? <laughs> Episode. What is up with this long ass Groundhog Day? I hate it. I hate it. I'm over it. Yeah. Let's thank some people and then get really depressing. That sounds like a great idea. Uh, this week we have to thank Nicole, Alejandra, Jean, Catherine, Marlene, Kate, Sex Ed for Buy Guys, Mara, and Jody. Thanks. Everyone, for your support, uh, we really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so there's been a lot of COVID news this week, Nora. Oh, yeah? A lot. Really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, really. Don't know if you've heard, but the numbers in Canada with respect to vaccines are terrible, are awful. Canada is doing an awful job in terms of speed um, at vaccinating the population. Yes, I have heard this. I've been watching this very, very closely, and I was watching it as, you know, the first um, phase, I guess, of our vaccination campaign had gone underway. And, you know, that we were hitting a high of 45,000 people per day in terms of vaccines being, you know, administered, which <laughs> would mean that Oh, at the best count, I think it would take 130 weeks or something to vaccinate all Canadians, which, of course, by the time that passes, uh, COVID will just become uh, probably a very disastrous cold. <laughs> but it will no longer be the pandemic in which we live. Um, and so 
I had to stop looking at the vaccine information when it was uh, clear that we were running out and we have run out and those shipments don't seem to be coming anytime soon. And it seems like maybe the government's plan, and I say the government, I literally mean fucking everyone. I mean, Jason Kenney, I mean, Doug Ford, I mean, Justin Trudeau, I mean, Francois Legault, like every government's plan of letting the vaccine be the salvation and not have to take any of the issues that have been so obvious from the beginning of this pandemic, uh, never not taking any of them on, not adding any more money, not spending federal money in the case of the provinces. No, they're just like the vaccine is going to save us, except we have no fucking control over the global supply chain of the vaccine. And Canada, like being the fake, pathetic fucking country that we are, we purchased five times the number of vaccines that that of people that live in Canada as if it was like going to make sure that we got them first I don't know first or something or if it was like going to show that Trudeau's like really really on it but um yeah Sandy how's it going then like are we how are we doing (laughs) well we're doing really poorly compared to um basically any other peer country even the United States which is hilarious given how disastrous things are going in the United States I mean part of this uh the the issue here is Canada's reliance on other countries and of course um these other countries that have the ability to produce the vaccines which Canada apparently does not have the ability to produce the vaccines which I continue to think is um just um so very strange and also irresponsible uh, because we're res- we are dependent on these other countries, these other countries are, of course, prioritizing um, their own population before Canada. So that's a disaster. But beyond even that being a disaster, there's just terrible, terrible policy coming from our politicians um, and uh, just, you know, a terrible execution. So, y- you know, one part of that terrible policy being not having nurses be a part of the plan, which, um, you know, I've spoken about before, you know, nurses not being a part of the plan for vaccinations. And uh, I have a cousin who's been doing a lot of advocacy on that piece, because it doesn't make any sense that you wouldn't involve um, all of these people in the healthcare field who have the ability to administer vaccines to be a part of the plan. Um, and then to, to the, like the sheer stupidity of Ontario publishing vaccination numbers that are just completely incorrect (laughs) because they counted wrong. So for those of you who haven't seen this news, you know, the vaccine requires multiple doses. And Ontario is publishing these numbers of how many uh, people they're vaccinating. And it turns out they were counting each dose as a separate vaccine rather than um, counting how many people had been uh, properly vaccinated, as in receiving two doses, meaning that Ontario's numbers were actually half of what they were, and they were already terrible. And so that is um, the level of competence that is running, you know, our our uh, uh, fucking ability to arise from this <laughs> total shit show uh in ontario the place of my birth (laughs) my birth too how (laughs) lovely how lovely oh my god if you if you motherfuckers elect this person (laughs) again i swear to 
God. I mean, remember last year, last summer, when they were talking about um, Daddy Ford or however the fuck they were like inappropriately referring to him about being this like nice <laughs> papa? He's a piece of shit, continues to be a piece of shit. And that's what's going on with this. I just, it's unfucking believable that that was an error. <laughs> Sorry, that's the guy who couldn't get, like, the license plates right, even though he literally owns a fucking label <laughs> company, right? Like, this is not surprising. Yeah, I mean, no, it's not. And I hope that someone has linked those two things in an editorial somewhere. And if they haven't, Nora, write an article, please. <laughs> Well, the, va- the vaccine situation is so political and it's been political from the beginning and it has not been covered as if it's been political. You know, journalists have really followed the lines and the lo- the, the logic of the opposition or of Trudeau himself. And, you know, like I think that there has been a real reluctance to talk about how little power we have in this entire discussion. Like we literally have no power. We don't we don't have a ability to, to tell um, any of these companies, we can't tell Moderna, we, we can't tell Pfizer BioNTech that we need these vaccines faster than everyone else because they've got, you know, other countries literally making the exact same demands on them. And the the, the way that this has been used and focused on as being like this silver bullet to end the, 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 the pandemic, like certainly it is a way to end the pandemic and everyone wants this pandemic to end. But the way that politicians have been focusing so much on the vaccine has just served to completely obscure the fact that long-term care is still in a disaster. And like Unless you have a situation where you are able to vaccinate everyone in long-term care, which some provinces have, then then the vaccine becomes much less important because it doesn't matter how many vaccines you've ordered. I mean, the majority of what we've ordered is of a vaccine, one of the vaccine candidates that hasn't even been approved yet, right? So, like, we're also, like, waiting because we hedged our bets in this way. And uh, as you say, we have no ability to make this ourselves. And even if we did, I mean, we've also been blocking uh, at the W um, at the WTO, uh, the blocking the ability of poorer countries to get access to the IP of these vaccines so that they can produce it themselves. So good, good, good work, uh, Canada. Um, but you know, like here's a here's a story that I has not at all been told in English Canada and has barely been told in in, in Quebec, but. The first hospital that was supposed to be getting the vaccine in the province of Quebec was in Quebec City, and it's a place called Seychelles de Saint-Antoine. And they chose Saint-Antoine because there had not been an outbreak at this place. It's, a, it's quite a large Seychelles day. And the day that they were supposed to start the vaccine campaign, they had an outbreak. And obviously the outbreak happened days before. And so they had to start moving patients out because you don't want to necessarily be vaccinating within an outbreak. It's not ideal, but you know, you also kind of have to do what you have to do. So they they go ahead with the vaccine campaign. Quebec City has vaccinated everybody in long-term care facilities, the staff and the and the residents, which is just, I mean, so good news. Um which is not unfortunately the case in a lot of places in this country and how uh, politicians have decided to do this. But even though they they vaccinated everybody, Saint-Antoine go, went from zero, uh, uh, you know, cases when they decided to, to go there for the vaccine campaign to 49 deaths as of this week. Wow. 
and oh it's my just God. like how, how yeah and also the the first death of a of um of a preposé of an orderly in Quebec City uh, who had not yet been been vaccinated it wasn't like his vaccine hadn't like kicked in yet right because it takes a couple of weeks for your immunity to actually work out and so like how did the ball get dropped in such a massive way at the place where you're supposed to have ground zero for this vaccination campaign well it says to me that people let their guard down that they thought that the vaccine was going to be what would stop the outbreaks and of course it doesn't work like that it's not that fast right <laughs> And then where's the attention on it, on this on this situation? It, it it just it makes me so angry, and it's just such proof that we've put way too much faith in the vaccine to save us from this too soon. Like I think you know, place that that faith in September, not in February. Oh my God, uh, this is all really bad news. <laughs> <laughs> this is all really bad news. Uh, and there's like mm-hmm. worse news. You know, there's um, I, I was reading an article uh, today about how um, the 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 virus itself and particular uh, strains of the virus have already um, exhibited because it's mutated. It's been allowed to mutate at such a staggering rate. Um, there are already um, mutations that are vaccine resistant. And, um, you know, these uh, vaccine developers are um, really concerned that they're going to need to continue to work on new vaccines because already um, the effectiveness of some of the vaccines are out, that are out there are not um, are not being replicated in, in places uh, um, in in clinical trials that are occurring in places all over the world. So, you know, this is all really bad. Um, and we can't, as Nora says, rely on um, simply the vaccine uh, to save us. This is also going to need to um, be addressed as a result of good fucking policy, as we've been saying at, at the beginning. But, uh, you know, part of what we're seeing, again, is this, like, this, uh, you know, understanding, I think, from people in power, that they know who's who's not going to get the vaccine, and they know who is going to be able to get the vaccine. No matter what's being said about who's being prioritized, we've already seen um, in Canada how people can use their wealth uh, to, to try to skip the line um, or their connections to try to skip the line to get the vaccine um, ahead of vulnerable communities. And so, look, um, you know, if if a politician is looking at this and saying, you know, the the communities that we care about the most, the wealthiest communities, the communities who vote for us um, are going to be able to get the vaccine and then we'll just ride it out for everyone else. That is a decision that's being made about who's going to die and who's going to live. Um, and that's entirely unacceptable. And speaking of that, you know, I don't know if this is related, and this is another story coming out of Ontario, but the Arch Disability Law Center, which is a legal aid clinic in Ontario, released a um, press release uh, this weekend uh, that is very, very concerning. And it's unclear from the press release whether this has to do with COVID, but it might be. And it's also unclear what's really going on because this hasn't gotten a lot of coverage, um, which, you know, again, just goes to show you where we are with uh, media. But the press release says um, that the Arch Disability Law Center is alarmed to learn that the Ontario Critical Command Center is seeking an executive order to suspend certain provisions of the Health Care Consent Act that would effectively permit doctors to withdraw treatment from a patient without the consent of the patient 
or family, which is very, very strange and very, very concerning. Yeah, I'm really glad that um, that the legal clinic made a big deal about this on Twitter. That's also how I saw it. And it's just such a good reminder of how disability is treated within society. And that, like that's the big story, of course, of the pandemic, the, the ways in which marginalized people have, have been, you know, further marginalized, further injured, have experienced more violence um, as a result of public policy and, and, and refusals to actually contain the virus. But the thread that goes throughout all of it is disability. And the, the idea that now is when they want to allow doctors to be able to make the decision to remove critical care without um, the consent of the family. It's very curious because, you know, you say we maybe we're not sure how much this has to do with COVID. It doesn't mention they don't mention COVID in the, in the press release. But certainly the timing suggests that um, that it does. And as we've just gotten through this really awful wave that was caused likely by a holiday gathering uh, in a pandemic, which fucking people don't do that. <laughs> like, it's not a good idea. Um, uh, that as we're, we're starting to finally see these hospital numbers go down, but you can see that, of course, this would have been in the works, not just instantly. It would have been in the works with politicians looking at a healthcare system that is incredibly under strain, where they don't have enough ICU beds, they don't have enough ventilators, and they're looking for ways to, you know, clear up beds. Like, yeah, we'll take this person off of critical care if the doctor deems that they need to be taken off critical care. I, I think that we need to really see the, the the pandemic through the lens of eugenics uh, or even through the lens of ethnic cleansing mm-hmm. instead of ethnicity put in ability cleansing, right? This idea that um, that within society, like ableism is so intense that, that people don't even really question when uh, you say, look, um, 14,000 people have died in residential care and there's um, politicians know that that average people will say, yeah, but they probably were going to die anyway. And because of that, there's no extra anything done to try and protect people who are living in these in these places. And so those individuals themselves, of course, experience incredibly horrific um, living conditions, their families uh, are totally stressed out, can't even access some of their loved ones, um, oftentimes, especially when, there's under, when they're under lockdown. And I, like, there's so much blame to go around. But I think I, I want listeners to really think about the, the, the way that journalists have talked about this pandemic and how absent the voices of people with disabilities have been in these discussions. Like we've listened to probably like what, 200 doctor interventions at the ratio of maybe one intervention of someone with disabilities. And I can actually only literally think of a single interview that I've heard of someone who lives with a disability and they were actually not talking about COVID at all. (laughs) They're talking about the medically assisted and dying act, which is a whole other fight that people with disabilities have been waging um, throughout this, this pandemic to try and get Canadians to pay attention to what's going on with the made legislation. And it's just so disgusting and so unacceptable from journalists to just ignore and erase that whole dynamic from this discussion because it just then normalizes, allows, continues, justifies, gives cover to, to, to governments, to public health officials and to doctors or to hospital networks that are like, well, we don't like to play God, but, you know, we're running out of oxygen, so we kind of have to, uh, all because of this man-made crisis, this, this crisis that was literally, you know, 
not not made in the way that like a lot of the far right wants to talk about it. Like we have a pandemic, pandemics happen. There's completely normal aspects of our existence. But the crisis that was made by politicians to not take this pandemic seriously, to not close work workplaces, to not pay people to stay home. And then the effects of this is this incredible carnage uh, of, 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 of Canadians who by and large were living with, with disabilities. The, this decision that is, um, you know, going to be if it if it is granted, you know, will will be codified. Uh, we should all understand as, uh, you know, um, this community of people who are listening to Sandy and Nora that that decision had already been made. Right. Like the the decision that um, they are going to be deciding um, to, uh, you know, um, in some way or another, that certain people are going to have to die has already been made. Um, you know, when when the the government makes a decision um, and even posits what their decisions are going to be with respect to policy and uh, and this pandemic, and when they when they make those decisions based off of is it going to be health or is it going to be the economy? That is a corollary to the decision of, well, um, who's going to die? Who gets to die? Um, that's what those decisions do. And of course, of course, um, because of the ableist way in which our society is set up, people with disabilities are and have been disproportionately impacted and it's absolutely disgusting and so i hope you know for the journalists who do listen to our show that someone really uh, takes this piece on uh in the coming week because this is just you know i saw this and i was just so stunned and i was trying i was like looking for information i couldn't find anything and i was just like why can't i find information what the fuck is going on and mm-hmm. again it doesn't say that it's about covid but it does say that it's it's a temporary request so i just you know it has to be about um about uh, uh, the uh, overcrowded hospitals. And so, and of course, this is not just going to impact COVID patients. It's going to impact all patients. And so also remember that when you're thinking about um, how this uh, is going to come down. They're going to think about, they're going to have to make these decisions about who who to provide care to and who to withdraw care from and that uh, is just fucking awful. Okay, yep. so there's that. And then there's also, oh, God, there's just so much news around COVID this week. There's also uh, some new travel restrictions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there sure are. So uh, now uh, wealthy people, <laughs> I think, is supposed to be like the way that, that this is supposed to be thought of are no longer able to go on vacation to the, the Caribbean, I suppose. And Mexico, mm-hmm. um, in addition to new travel restrictions uh, regarding testing once you arrive to the airport and a mandatory quarantine for three days. And it's just like, OK, yeah. Um, one, I don't understand... there's so much I I don't understand you know it's like yes travel restrictions good again looking at the time it's like gonna be February (laughs) when this comes out so I'm like cool February it's like been a whole 12 months 
great travel restrictions right on time, Canada, um, and mandatory quarantine of three days, uh, which <laughs> also seems <It's> great. <laughs> you know, it's just like, okay, mandatory to quarantine, cool. Three days, I don't really understand. So because here's the thing, right? <laughs> I just, you know, if you test negative, but you got it on the plane or in the airport, <laughs> The three the 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 period by which you're supposed to wait to get tested is like five to seven days. Mm -hmm. So if you get tested and then there's a three day quarantine and you test negative but you got it on the plane, you're probably not like you're not going to be presenting yet. And so, I don't know, man. It just seems like <laughs> more and more like all of these announcements that we're hearing from our government officials are just announcements that are meant to say, "Hey, we're doing something." even if the something is kind of useless. <laughs> yeah, that's that's been the way that they've approached the, the pandemic from the start, right? Like the idea that they would bring this in now while people ha are already gone, like no snowbirds are leaving in February, right? The whole idea of being yeah. a snowbird is you fucking yes. go before the snow comes. Yeah, you're right? already gone. <laughs> yeah, and so and, and just... so I appreciate that the folks that are away are like, what the fuck? I was allowed to go. Right. Because all of this like bullshit. Oh, only go if it's essential. It's like, well, I have property there. So it's essential. Right. It's like I personally don't think that's essential. But I understand that the, the regulations are so vague that someone could make that argument that it was essential for them to go, that it's safe for them for them to be down there because they're more isolated because they live in a gated community of hell. Like I get I get all of that. But as you say, like three days doesn't make any sense. If you get COVID on the plane, like that, you absolutely will not start showing symptoms until that third day, right? That's what we know about symptom onset with COVID. It's also ridiculous too, because it's like, you know, we we can see what other countries that are successful at having a proper quarantine, what they are doing, right? It's a mandatory quarantine. You must be tested several times um, and it's state it's state funded. Like I, I don't really have a problem with like snowbirds being forced to pay for their own quarantine, but I do have a problem with the state not taking the responsibility on of keeping its citizens protected from other citizens. And that is something that the state should be paying for. Like they should be providing all of this stuff to make sure people are quarantining and they're not. And not only are they not, but they've also been just like allowing exemption after exemption for people who are like too rich to have uh, any time to quarantine. Like that has been the main story from the start. So these new travel restrictions are just going to fucking suck for a lot of people who had plans for whatever, like legitimate or illegitimate plans. And it's another example of doing the bare minimum too little too late all about optics that aren't actually going to do anything, uh, probably, other than make a bunch of snowbirds, like, fucking live in a hotel and eat hotel food for three days when they come back to Canada. Yeah, and all of this just makes me feel so frustrated. Like, I'm already, you know, just annoyed by this whole thing, and I'm done with it. Like, I just, like, I imagine many of you, <laughs> um, sick of seeing the four walls of my bedroom, <laughs> <laughs> just you know like want to to go have live shows with Nora live lead a, a more normal um what was normal life and just to see over and over and over again the way that this is being discussed the way that this is being handled 
just so shittily. Like, God, I was listening to the current, uh, the current that came out on Friday. And, you know, th- there was this discussion about at the Olympics and COVID and <laughs> such a weird whether or not discussion. the Olympics, it was such a strange discussion and whether or not the Olympics would go on. And then it was just like, well, you know, some of the questions were like, well, is there a chance that the Olympics might be canceled again? Because, you know, it's just, it's just so much money, right? Like it's just so much money. And then there was a consideration of like, yeah, well, I mean, like, there probably won't be a cancellation because it's too much money. But then, like, let's really think about what 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 athletes are are actually going to be competing against. Then, like, what if some athletes test positive on the way over to the to the Olympics, and then they're not going to be able to compete? And then all of a sudden, you're not actually competing against the best. You're competing against the best, and whose country was able to protect them the most from COVID? And I'm listening. I'm listening to this like is this real life (laughs) is this the level of discussion that we're having about a vaccination we're literally talking about athletes as though they're not human they're just like around for our enjoyment (laughs) they're just like well we won't actually be able to see who's the best of the best during the COVID Olympics but we should still let the COVID Olympics happen because it's just too much money I just like is someone is anyone gonna uh, calculate the cost of how much money it's been to allow this much death and destruction uh, as a result of just letting this pandemic ran, ran, run rampant. There is these um, a series of articles that came out in Business Insider last week. Um, one that showed uh, the close to, I think it was $1.3 trillion that had been lost in the economy uh, from uh, in terms of job losses and people at the bottom of the economy. And that's how much, you know, wealth was lost uh, from the population. And then also the $1.6 trillion, I believe, that uh, the top billionaires made <laughs> in the same period. And it's just like the that is a choice. That is a choice that was made that it was more important for people like Jeff Bezos to continue to make money for people like Walmart, for Costco, <laughs> all these stores that remain open, more important for them to make money than for us to remain safe or to get safe, <laughs> to have a measure of safety. And it's just so fucking depressing so i'm just like god what do we do with the politicians nora what do they deserve (laughs) i uh, was listening to also cbc radio um because you know if you don't listen to cbc radio like how the fuck do you get through your life without having any pain right this is where i'm at right now with listening to the radio it's my daily my daily bread i guess of pain (laughs) (laughs) They were talking about. Uh, they were talking to Dr. Samir Sinha, who's um, a uh, he. He heads the National um, Institute of Aging, uh, and uh, uh, the host. Uh, it was day six. So the host was a Peter Armstrong, and and he was asking about like for profit long term care, and should we get rid of for profit the profit motive in long term care? And the conversation was very weird because 
um, it, it focused on Ontario, as uh, CBC Radio tends to do. And uh, Dr. Sinha was trying to say that, like, the problems within long-term care are more fundamental than even looking just at profit alone. And that's not the way that we should be having this conversation. We should be looking at, um, like, the conditions within these facilities. And um, the reality is that the proliferation of the private system within Ontario makes it really hard to see if these places are actually worse because there's just actually so many more residents in them as well. And that there are standards that private and public and not-for-profit residences all are supposed to be meeting. But, of course, the carnage within private for-profit residences have been horrible. But I found it so strange because um, it totally ignored Quebec, where the vast majority of people who've died have been in public facilities. And um, every time that I've heard journalists talk about, um, and Dr. Sinha talked about this as well, that Quebec was able to hire 10,000 new orderlies and get them trained very quickly in the summer, and now 7,000 of them are working in the system, and how come, how come no other province has been able to do this? And I'm, I'm just like hitting myself, like going like, when are you going to make the connections between the fact that, you know, you when you have a public system, you do have that level of control. You are able to place workers, you know, more quickly than having to manage a, a barrage of private operators that are all trying to squeeze profits out of their system and pay their shareholders. So like that's obviously part of it. But then the other question, of course, is then how did Quebec's public system fail so colossally in this pandemic? And we've talked about this a little bit on the show before. I've got lots of like ideas for why. But the conversation was so basic, like it was the kind of conversation that we should have had or that we could have had really in March, um, where like it was very clear that there were, that long-term care was going to be hit very hard because it already had appeared in Washington and then in, and then in Vancouver. And uh, I, I'm just like at 10 months in, how are we still having these conversations? And it's especially striking with the conversations around Roberta Place in Barrie, Ontario. And so Roberta Place is a is a for-profit facility that if you search online for Roberta Place or the UK variant, the only that's the only way that journalists are telling the story of Roberta Place is, is that this UK variant was introduced by a staff person after the holidays. And then from that staff person introducing it to the home until today, there's been more than 50 people, probably more than 60 people by the time you're listening, who have died. And it's like that's a pretty fast evolution for sure. But it's not telling the whole story. It isn't because of the variant that so many people had died because we are we know that the variant is in other homes and we know that other homes have had actually more death. Right. Tender care in Scarborough has it had 81 deaths. Um, I just mentioned Seychelles de Saint Antoine. There's also um, the 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 uh, long term long term care facility in Windsor called Village at St Clair, which is owned by Schlegel Villages. Schlegel, of course, being a major conservative guy donor to the party, um, they've had more than fifty deaths. And and then you know Rivera, which is the biggest operator, one of the biggest operators of for profit care in this country, they just announced that they had um, a case of the variant with a staff person that then introduced, you know, probably introduced COVID to this facility, but the outbreak didn't spin out of control. So what happened at Roberta Place? Well, then the news comes out that the residents were not cohorted away from one another when they had COVID, and so residents were literally fucking sharing a room. Uh, COVID positive and COVID negative uh, patients, that staff weren't wearing proper PPE. Staff wouldn't put in droplet PPE, PPE when they were dealing with someone with COVID. And then they weren't changing their PPE when they're going from one patient to another. It's just like, we have learned literally nothing, literally nothing. And all that media can focus on are these kinds of flashy hot topics. Oh, is private uh, profit the, the problem? Oh, is it the variant that's the problem? It's like, no, the, the problem is that the politicians are all corrupt pieces of shit, that their friends and them 
themselves have all made a ton of money off of long-term care. And we are witnessing the carnage that happens when you build a system that is literally meant to first give profit to people and then second provide care care for people. <sighs> yeah, I, you know, that that just about sums it up and i don't i don't really know if there's anything more to say i one of the things that uh, gives me uh you know that i'm quite nervous about um uh for the future is you know we're we're hearing these stories of the mental health of medical care providers and i really wonder about what all of this is going to do to uh to the care sector generally, uh, once this is over, um, you know, uh, already it is very difficult to enter the care sector. Um, already it is very expensive to, um, to become a nurse, to become a doctor, uh, to be involved in public health at these very highly skilled, uh, technical, uh, um, in these very highly skilled technical positions. Uh, and these people are being treated like shit. <laughs> in this country and they are being um, forced to deal with some of the most um, difficult situations that one could deal with um, just because fucking as Nora has has so well put it uh, politicians just don't fucking care they don't give a shit they're you know they're them their friends are making tons of money off of this and I you know I wonder what is that going to do to Canadian care in the future? What is it going to look like? Um, and that has me quite nervous. So I don't know. Uh, this is all very, very bad. Um, and sorry uh, for such a depressing episode. But again, as, as we said at the top of the episode, you know, there is ways for people to have impact on what's happening next. And I, you know, really, really, really want folks to pay attention to these decisions around uh, triage and making decisions about how to uh, and whether to and under what circumstances uh, the consent can be withdrawn uh, to, to withdraw care. Uh, I think that um, this is going to become more and more of an issue as we continue to to fail massively at keep, keeping people safe and as these uh as as the uh, pandemic worsens so uh let's pay attention to that let's organize around it you know uh, uh the arch disability law um they got the news out to certain people we're trying to get more news out to other people let's take a look at what's happening in other provinces and make sure we're paying attention to that yeah, and I also think that it's really important to highlight some of the um, the clear pressure points that people do have. Uh, this past week, 22 educational workers walked off the job in Toronto uh, when they were saying that they did not have adequate safety um, measures to be able to continue to do their jobs. And there, there were workers who had students who were in school, right? Not Most students in Ontario are not. Some students are in school. And that takes tremendous courage. And every time I say, like, educators, if you're not safe, you can, you can, let, you can walk off the job. And they're like, no, we can't. Or healthcare workers, like, you can take these actions. Like, no, we can't. We're legislatively bound, blah, 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 right? And it's like, guess fucking what? Like, this system has legislatively bound you to not 
be a problem. And when you start to speak out, like, yeah, we're seeing that there's doctors that are being reprimanded, that there's journalists are being told secret things about some um, advocates who've been critical of different governments. And uh, certainly we know that the Kenny government has no problem, like, like actually threatening, like threatening doctors directly. Um, but those folks are all like also high, highly paid and have a lot of, um, of social capital to protect them. When we start to see people like these teachers walking off the job and refusing unsafe work, that's really where the power is. And that's what we need to be thinking about. Like, if we have to re- reject these conditions, we have to we have to figure out how to game the system. I, I know a lot of folks have been asking us to talk about um, the uh, stock situation that's going on right now. And, you know, there, there's a whole lot to say about that. But what I find so interesting is that these mm. are average people who know each other through, like, primarily through Reddit. Okay, so, like, it's a place that people gather. It could be any place that people gather but let's say this is reddit and they have managed to learn the system through their kind of small stock trading well enough to coalesce into this massive fuck you to wall street campaign i don't know what it's going to result in i don't know what kind of changes we're going to see but that's the kind of 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 things that that happens when you come together and actually start strategizing together about what you can do to start really fucking with the system because the system absolutely needs to be fucked with right now and if you are just like not sure what to do like as sandy said like workers are burning out like there have been suicides of health workers who just cannot handle the stress of this pandemic and we can not expect politicians to do the right thing. They will absolutely not do the right thing. And so we have to look at what kinds of power that we do have in our day-to-day lives with the people around us to start to to just be like, cut the fucking government out of the equation if we can, or put that kind of pressure on the government that forces them to do something. Because we finally have a situation where they have billions of dollars, they could spend it anywhere, and they've decided instead to spend it on fucking private security firms outside of long-term care facilities in Ontario. I'm not sure if you heard of that news, that all also was announced today, $42 million for private security officers. I did not see that like, news. <laughs> it's just going to get worse. And any single person, the fucking NDP, any of the unions that appeals to the good sense of a politician right now to change their mind and do the right thing is doing it fucking wrong. The politicians don't know what they're doing in terms of doing it right. They do know what they're doing in terms of making their friends rich. And so we need to keep that in the front of our mind when we're organizing. What Private security. What? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. You cannot police your way. Anyway, you've heard, you know this, uh, dear listeners. Um, (laughs) Nora, before we close out, I do want to acknowledge um, that, you know, January 29th has just passed us. Um, And on January 29th in 2017, um, you know, Alexandre Bissonnette entered a Quebec City mosque and killed six Muslim men. Uh, and it was an act of uh, Islamophobia. It was an act of hate. It was an act of white supremacy. And I think it is critical for us to um, remember this and also engage with it appropriately, given what is happening politically at this time in Canada. We've recently talked about um, the the white supremacist organizing that continues to happen, the white supremacist organizing that uh, inspired Alexandre Bissonnette And, you know, that reality means that we have a responsibility um, to fight against this, uh, acknowledge that it is happening uh, and see it as real. Don't refuse to acknowledge that it's happening like many of our politicians have been doing and to engage 
um, appropriately in some sort of plan uh, to thwart that white supremacist organizing and how it affects um, uh, um, uh, people of color, racialized people, uh, indigenous people, black people across Canada. And so, um, you know, uh, I want to make sure that we're mentioning and engaging with this at the close of the show, but also that we're always, uh, you know, remembering that this is something that happens in Canada, happened in Canada, is happening in Canada, and we have a responsibility um, to to engage with that. Yeah, thank you for for raising that because you know I I, I was really involved. I'm I'm involved in the commemoration every year. And this year was obviously very weird because we couldn't be in in real life together. And so we held a vigil at the mosque and uh, no one was there, right? Like we we had um, some politicians present, but not many. We had some volunteers from the mosque. There was two survivors of the attack. There was uh, Ayman Durbali, who many people have probably heard speak um, because he's spoken quite a lot about his um, about his experiences that night. And we also had a speaker named Mohammed Kabar, who uh, you know, as um, as the spokesperson of the mosque. Bufelja Ben Abdallah had told the journalist that he has two bullets of hate in his body. Like literally, he he still has two bullets in his body. And I every year um, I approach organizing this like with this sense of like it has to happen. It's really important, and it's really important to remind, you know, to to never forget what happened. But it was this year where I really felt that it was also a, a, it's it's also important as like an act of resistance to that far right that that the context does change every year and that things move every year and now the far right especially in Quebec is like gone from islamophobia to being like anti-mask uh, which means they will come back. Like at some point it will swing back to be that that virulent, um, violent Islamophobia that um, has has just been so present for so many years in this in this province and of course across Canada mm-hmm. too. But when everyone is stuck at home and it doesn't feel like anything's normal, we pushed through to organize as normal a possible uh, a, a vigil and the vigil was viewed by more than 10,000 people in French and several hundred in English. And it was like, oh, yeah, no, these these events, like, they take a lot of energy to organize. Like, my goodness, it's been my life for the last three weeks. But they're so important. They really, really are important. And so... I encourage you all, like you know, you should be you should be marking events in your own communities that um, that shouldn't just go by without a mention or mm-hmm. only go by with a mention of the communities impacted, mm-hmm. because creating space for memorialization not only reminds journalists to talk about an issue without it being in reaction to some horrible kind of event that's currently happening, you know, that um, that we don't need to li- wait for more events to happen before we talk about this stuff. But it also brings together people in really incredible ways and makes new friendships and helps people build um, solidarity. So I wrote a three-part series about uh, the, the commemoration this year for the National Observer. I really encourage everyone to take a, a read of the three pieces that I wrote. I didn't choose the title, so I'm really sorry about that. But um, yeah, yeah, the the federal government's named January 29th as a day of remembrance and action uh, against Islamophobia, and that's it's great that they did that, and mm-hmm. not enough because they haven't really done anything to address the far right. So you know, there's more work to be done. Indeed. <laughs> 